0: 1 John chapter 5, beginning in verse 14, John writes, now this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother sinning a sin, which does not lead to death, he will ask, And he will give him life for those who commit sin not leading to death. There is sin leading to death. I do not say that he should pray about that. All unrighteousness is sin. And there is sin not leading to death. In this chapter, in chapter 5, we're exhorted To love the brethren in verse 1 and 2 and 3. We are encouraged to experience victory over sin in verses 4 and 5. We examine the evidence for Christ's credentials, the testimony of the Father, the Spirit, blood and water in verses 6 through 12. We've been reminded of the assurances that we have of our salvation in verse 13. And also, we understand something else. We are given guidance in prayer in verses 14 through 17, which we just read. John's been answering the question How do I know that I know that I know that I'm born again? How do I know that I have a right relationship with God? Part of the answer includes. My prayers are answered. Now remember the saved person believes that Jesus is the Christ in verses 1. And then again in 5, the saved person loves and obeys God in verses 2 through 4. The saved person receives answers to prayer. On my radio program today, I was talking with a particular person who was asking me a question. He said that he had once embraced Christianity and then abandoned Christianity, that he didn't really believe that Jesus rose from the dead and that God never answered his prayers. God has no obligation to answer anybody's prayer who doesn't know him or believe him. The Bible says that all who come to him must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. The person had asked me a strange question. He said, why is it required that you come to God by faith? And of course, I answered the question by without faith, it's impossible to please God. And so The saved person loves and obeys God in verses 2 through 4. The saved person receives answers to prayer. And later in the chapter in verses 18 through 21, we discover that the saved person refuses to continue in sin. You know, this week I was reminded of some of the curious practices of royalty in different countries In Saudi Arabia, according to Arab custom, reinforced by a 1952 decree of King Abdul Aziz, every subject in the Saudi Arabian kingdom has the right to access his ruler, whether the ruler is a tribal sheik or a governor or a monarch, to hear petitions, to present complaints, to plea for help. Even the poorest Saudi citizen can approach the sovereign and plead their cause. Crown Prince Faid spoke about the custom and said, quote, anyone, anyone can come here. That gives them confidence in their government. They know they may look to us for help. And I thought about that. Every Christian has the right to approach his or her monarch. We are Christians. We have the right to approach God. We have the right to approach the king of kings. The born-again believer has been granted citizenship in heaven. And then all of the rights and the privileges that go with citizenship in heaven. The Bible repeatedly says you have access to your king. And so John wants you to accept Experience the benefits of his love. And remember, one of the benefits of, of the love of God and experiencing the love of God is assurance of your salvation, answered prayer, abiding in his presence, the empowerment by the Holy Spirit. And so our confidence in prayer, look at verse 14. At the beginning of the, of the verse, it says, now this is the confidence that We have in him that if we ask anything. Remember what I've already reminded you. Confidence means boldness. It also has another meaning. The meaning is freedom of speech. In the military, when you're speaking to someone who's in a superior rank, sometimes they'll say, permission to speak freely. That's confidence and boldness. You have permission to speak freely. But remember, our confidence is in him. That means the Lord Jesus Christ. Our confidence is that God sent Jesus, that Jesus loves us, that he died for our sins, that his sacrifice is meaningful. We pray in faith. And of course, prayer should be simple and sincere and persistent and definite. In 1 John, we are given Repeated confidences. And by the way, remember what we've already learned. We are confident that we have eternal life in verse 13. We have confidence that we have answered prayer in the will of God in verses 14 through 17. Later, we're going to discover that we have confidence in our victory over sin in, in chapter 5 verse 18. We're confident that we belong to God in verse 19. We're confident that Jesus is the savior, the true God who came down from heaven in verse 20. So there's five confidences that are listed in this, just this very short section. One of the most frequently asked questions I ever get is, why should I pray? More than one person has come up to me and said, Look, if God knows everything about everything, if God is going to act according to his will anyway, why pray? And the question betrays a kind of naive ignorance of our friendship and fellowship with God. The purpose of prayer isn't simply to ask anything, but to promote friendship and fellowship. Remember, that's the theme of this book. Prayer is communication. I've told you repeatedly that if I were to take that one word, communication, and define it with two more words, it would be shared understanding. It isn't just God speaking to us, but it's us speaking to to him and understanding each other. Prayer is the means that God has ordained to promote fellowship, friendship, to promote relationship and guidance. We're encouraged to pray for ourselves in Matthew 14, 30 and in Luke 23, 42. We're encouraged to pray for one another in James 5:16. Throughout the New Testament, we're told to pray for pastors and leaders and rulers. We're even given permission to pray for our enemies. And of course, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1, Paul says, Pray for everyone. In Christ we can ask. Anything. What's interesting to me is again, someone will read this. Now, this is the confidence that we can have in Him that we can ask anything. Can you imagine someone immature and foolish saying, Well, can we ask for wicked things, selfish things, foolish things? Is there anything in the passage that would lead you to believe? That it includes wicked things, selfish things, foolish things, sinful things. No, that's not what he's talking about. And just in case he anticipates that by the end of the verse. But rather according to his will. He hears us. That's our correction in prayer. But we also might add the conditions in prayer. You know, one of the most gracious limitations is that our prayer be according to his will. God's will, not the individual will. And this is repeated, by the way, in John chapter 14, verses 13 and 14. John chapter 15, verse 16. John chapter 16, verse 21. It is surprising to me that we live in a culture and a society, even in a Christian culture, subculture, if you will, where there's a group of people who think that you don't have to pray according to God's will, that you can demand things or command things from God. But that's not what the scriptures teach. So how do we pray according to his will in order for him to hear us? Well, it begs a question, doesn't it? The question is, how do we know God's will? And the simple answer is, we know God's will because God's Holy Spirit reveals God's will in God's word. We pray according to what God wants, not necessarily what we demand or desire, but in obedience to his commands and to pursue those things that would help us to avoid sin. One of the ways that we know about God's will is to ask ourselves the most simple question possible. And that is, is what I'm asking for, does it reflect his character? Does it reflect his nature? Does it reflect his desires? I want to remind you of something that you already know. Can we alter the will of God? The answer is no. Since we can't alter the will of God, is it our job to pray for something that God absolutely and positively doesn't honor, doesn't like, doesn't respect, and won't honor? The answer is no. So what are we doing? We pray in order to discover the will of God. And then we pray in order to cooperate with God's will. Paul speaks about this in Romans chapter 8, verses 26 through 28, where Paul writes, Likewise, the Spirit, speaking of the Holy Spirit also helps us in our weaknesses, for we don't know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which can't be uttered. And in verse 27 it says, Now he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he, that's the Holy Spirit, makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God and in verse 28 and we know that all things work together for good for those who love God to those who are the called according to his purpose we require the holy spirit's assistance i want you to think about that for just a moment we require the holy spirit's assistance you know if you're a parent or a grandparent and you have really small children or grandchildren you know that sometimes they require assistance. You have to give them age-appropriate help. And we as Christians are never so mature that we don't require the assistance of the Holy Spirit. Martin Luther wisely wrote, quote, the Holy Ghost has two offices. First, he's the Spirit of Grace that makes God gracious unto us and receive us as his acceptable children for Christ's sake. Secondly, he's a spirit of prayer that prays for us and for the whole world to the end that evil may be turned from us and that all good may happen to us, unquote. And even though that was written so long ago, it's exactly right. The prayers that we pray is in order for goodness to happen to us. John Bunyan famously said, in in prayer, it's better to have a heart without words than words without a heart. He also said, prayer opens the heart to God, and it is the means by which the soul, though empty, is filled with God. And so when you pray in your emptiness, instead of dwelling on the emptiness, pray and say, God, fill my heart. Fill my heart with joy. Fill my heart with praise. Fill my heart with gratitude towards you. D.L. Moody wrote, spread out your petitions before God and then say, thy will, not mine, be done. D.L. Moody said, the sweetest lesson I have learned in God's school is to let the Lord choose for me. I love that. When I need clothes, my wife knows that I'm color impaired. She goes, do you like this or do you like that? And I say to my wife, you choose You choose. Now, every once in a while, I'll choose something. So when I look bad, you can blame it on me. But have you ever gone out to dinner and said to the person who took you or maybe you took them or however it all was working out and you just said, you choose. You choose. Have you ever actually allowed someone to order for you? No, you should try it sometime. You might be surprised what you'll get. Every once in a while, it's okay for you to say, Lord, you choose what's best for me. I gotta tell you something, when you pray a prayer like, God, get me a husband. God, get me a wife. God, get me whatever it is. You're gonna be so much better off and saved. Lord, you choose. So what kind of prayer yields results? Remember what we've learned. Confident prayer in verse 14. Prayer that's consistent with the purpose and the will of God at the end of verse 14. Again, one Bible writer says, quote, In communicating with God, therefore, believers do not demand what they want or think they need. Rather, they discuss with God what what he wants for them when believers align their prayers to God's will he hears them and if or since they know what that they know that hears their that God hears their prayers they can be certain that he will give them a definite answer praying in line with God's will is the key to getting whatever believers ask they should not think that they can obtain anything they want in order to benefit themselves Prayer in line with God's will is prayer for the benefit of God's kingdom as the next verse, verses 16 and 17, illustrate. So are there boundaries or limitations prescribed by Scripture? Are there certain things that are going to hinder prayer or make prayer more difficult? Well, the answer is yes. The Bible invites us to confess our sin. Remember 1 John? If you confess your sin, he's faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. But the sweet psalmist of Israel, David, saying, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear but certainly God has heard me. He has attended to the voice of my prayer. Blessed be God who has, turned, who has not turned away my prayer, nor his mercy from me. That's Psalm 66, verses 19 through 20. What David is basically saying is, you run the risk of not getting answers if you regard iniquity in your heart or sin. And I want you to understand what that means. It doesn't mean that we don't sin or that we're perfect people. What David is talking about is a willful, unrepentant sin that you're not willing to abandon, that you're not willing to get rid of. What else can serve as obstacles to prayer? Well, pride. Refusing to submit to biblical teaching. In Proverbs chapter 1, verse 24 and 28. Turning a blind eye to those who are in need. Proverbs 21, 3. And again, if you remember in 1 John chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, it says, By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us. And we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? If you go through life ignoring Everyone around you. That can serve as a, as a difficulty. And don't forget the last three words in that sentence. He hears us. We sang it. I called. You answered. And you came to my rescue. I called. You answered. Oswald Chambers said it as simply as I have ever heard, quote, the point of asking is that you may get to know God better, unquote. What's the point of asking? It isn't just simply so you can get what you think you want or get what you think you need. I think Oswald Chambers has got it right. The point of asking is that you can get to know him better. You ask. He hears. Now I want you to think this through. Is anything that you have to say new information to God? Does God go, I'm shocked and surprised that you told me that? Or can you imagine God in heaven going, I had no idea never happens. He knows everything about everything. And so, prayer doesn't inform God. So I want you to just pause for a moment and then think, well, then what does it do? If prayer never informs God, prayer becomes the mechanism whereby you can be informed by him. And now we're back to what the caller asked me on the radio today. I don't hear from God. I've never heard God's voice. You know, the truth is, for some of you, you may not have heard an audible voice. But if you're like me, you have heard God say, no. That's not a good idea for you. You pray, Lord, what about this? And the Lord goes gently but firmly. That's not a good idea for you. I think one of the reasons why we're able to hear no so well from God is because of our upbringing as a child. Probably it was the very first word you clearly and completely understood from your parents or grandparents. No! And so he's going to give an interesting illustration, our compassion and prayer. Look what it says in verse 15 and if we know that he hears us whatever we ask we know that we'll have the petition that we have asked of him i think warren Wiersbe rightly points out quote john did not write we shall have the requests but quote we know that we have the requests well, what does that mean What's interesting in the original language, the verb tense here, is in the present tense. The idea is we may not see the answer to a prayer immediately, but we have inner confidence that God has answered the prayer. The confidence or faith is the evidence of things not seen, Hebrews 11.1. It's God witnessing to us that he's heard and answered our prayer. We ask. He hears us. Whatever we ask, we know answers that we have the petition that we ask of him. What might these petitions be? Now, I want you to think this through. We ask, he hears us. Whatever we ask, we know. What does that mean? We know that we're going to get whatever we want. No, that's not what it means. Because the answer is going to be yes. The answer might be no. The answer might even be, wait. The answer might even be, even though you don't want to hear it, I have something so much better for you. It isn't just simply, no, you can't have that. It's, I have someone. I have something else in mind. Jesus invites us to pray petitions. And by the way, maybe the most famous petition is contained in the most famous prayer in all of the Bible. You learn it as a child. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then a petition is made. Give us this day our daily bread. A petition is a request. But remember Even when Jesus teaches his disciples to pray and he says, included in that, give us this day our daily bread, it's preceded by something that is far more remarkable, our Father. It's in the context of a special relationship with God, in faith, who art in heaven, in worship, hallowed be your name, in expectation, your kingdom come, in submission, Your will be done as it is in heaven. And then comes the petition. What's interesting about that is we have petitions, but the petition is preceded by relationship and worship and expectation and submission. All of these things go before the petition. And what's interesting about that is how often we do exactly the opposite. We pray and we go, hey, could I have that? By the way, if you have children or grandchildren or a husband or a wife or a friend, how long does the friendship last when the very first thing out of their mouth is, Give me this? Oh, hi, how are you? Yeah, good to see you as well. John Newton. Well, again, even as I think about this, the Bible's filled with petitions and prayers. And we're given permission to pray for ourselves. It's okay for you to pray for a home, for a job. It's okay for you to pray for things that you need. It's okay. John Newton saying, thou art coming to a king. Large petitions with thee bring for his grace and power are such. None can ever ask too much. I love that. You're coming to a king, large petitions with thee bring. You know, I'm reminded of the story of Alexander the Great. And Alexander the Great obviously conquers most of the known world. He accumulates a massive amount of wealth. And by every standard that you can imagine, he becomes the richest man in the world. And he he had a special fondness for a certain philosopher. And he said to this philosopher, ask me whatever you want. And he was laying there basking in the sun and he said, could you please move just a little bit to the right? You're blocking my son. And his admiration grew because he could have asked him for anything and he quite frankly would have given him anything. But this is the point. Sometimes we do exactly the same thing with the Lord. We can ask great things. Believe great things. Now it's in that context we have this very strange verse. And let's look at it together. In verse 16 it says, If anyone sees his brother sinning a sin, and I want you to follow closely with the reading of the text, I'm going to point some things out to you. If anyone sees his brother sinning a sin which does not lead to death, he, notice the he, is a small H. He will ask. And he, the next he, is a big H, which stands for God. And he will give him life for those who commit sin not leading to death. There is sin leading to death. I do not say that he should pray about that. What does this curious passage mean? Again, we're invited to consider the passage in its context. I want you to remember everything that you've read so far and all that I've talked about in the chapter. The born again believer receives answers to prayer. The born again believer loves the brethren. The born-again believer prays and intercedes for fellow believers. Compassion and care demands that we pray for each other when we fall into sin. And so intercessory prayer becomes a vital part of the life of the individual and the church. And so for the person who says, I don't need to go to church, that person is, admitting that they don't want to exercise compassion and care towards the people in the church. They think that they are subject to themselves. Now, I I want to point out just a couple of things. Compassion is the biblical alternative to to blame. And and the reason why all of this becomes so very important is because if you see someone involved in sin, if you see someone who's caught up in some sort of persistent sin, you might want to feel the need to judge them or blame them. The Bible's instructions is to fight that feeling and say, Lord, create in my heart compassion towards this person. I wonder if John may have been thinking about the instructions given by Jesus. We're dependent upon the Lord for deliverance. Even in the Lord's prayer, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And so there's intercession becomes impossible in isolation, if you're going to love the brethren and care for the brethren and pray for the brethren, you have to be involved in each other's lives. The God-honoring prayer of faithful believers help restore brothers and sisters who have fallen into sin and helps Christians find their way back into friendship and fellowship with God and friendship and fellowship with each other. So what does John mean when he says, If anyone sees his brother sinning a sin, which does not lead to death, he, the faithful, compassionate brother, will ask. That means he prays. And he, that means God, will give him, the brother sinning a sin, which doesn't lead to death, life. So there's a sin leading to death. And I don't say that he should pray about that. We'll get to that in just a moment. So what is a sin that doesn't lead to death? And what is the sin that does lead to death? When John wrote these words, the audience apparently understood what he had in mind. Because John doesn't elaborate. But several interpretations have been offered to try and help us discern God's words. So what is he saying I'm going to give you some suggestions that have been offered. John might be speaking of specific sins. Now, again, remember, he's a Jew, and he has grown up in a Jewish culture, but he finds himself in a Gentile world. The little epistle of 1 John is probably written to both Jews and Gentiles living in and around Ephesus in what was called Anatolia or Asia Minor or what you and I would call Turkey. According to the law of Moses, certain sins were punishable by death. Others required repentance, a sacrifice, and restitution. Some of you who grew up in the Roman Catholic tradition are aware of what they call mortal sins. These are allegedly sins that killed the soul, and venial sins, and that way of thinking these are things that can be pardoned? Is he talking about mortal sin and venial sin? I'm going to suggest to you that that's probably not what he's talking about. The New Testament does describe sin that's committed by people in the church that can result in literal physical death. You'll remember in Acts chapter five, verses one through 11, you know the story of Ananias and Sapphira, how people are are giving and encouraging and taking care of one another. And Ananias and Sapphira tell the apostles that they've sold uh, a particular piece of property and they've given it all to the church, but it wasn't true. They lied. They lied to the Holy Spirit. And God, in this dramatic fashion, pronounces death both on Ananias and Sapphira. And again, it wasn't a sin to sell the property. And it wasn't a sin to keep back part of the proceeds. It would appear that they lied about it. They lied to the apostles. But more importantly... The text leaves us with the impression that they lied to the Holy Spirit. So what is John doing? Is John making a reference to physical death? Or is he making reference to spiritual death? Is he making reference to a decision that someone makes that might result in actual capital punishment? Another interpretation has been offered of the idea of apostasy. That so-called believers who walk away from the faith or abandon faith or who deny Jesus and deny the Lord and deny salvation and de- de- deny his death on the cross. Apostasy includes the idea that a person may have intellectually been persuaded by the claims of Christ and Christianity and then somehow they change their mind like the guy I talked with on the radio today who said, I used to be a Christian but all of that's over with now. That's not who I am. I actually even asked him, do you believe that Jesus is a historical person? The person said, yes. I said, do you believe that Jesus rose from the dead? And he said, no, I don't believe that at all. And I go, that's interesting. Because in a way, you're right. Dead people don't come back to life unless they do. And you see, that's the whole point of the gospel. That this Jesus is put to death. This Jesus comes back to life. If that's true, if this Jesus who died comes back to life, then that means that everything is different. So is John calling Christians to pray for those who wander from the faith or who have wandered far or have wandered so far that they can't come back? Or is John asking us to pray for those who might be tempted to abandon the faith? Or is John writing about false teachers who have in fact abandoned, denied essential Christianity like the deity of Christ, like salvation by grace alone, that that his death is the satisfying solution to the problem of sin, or his physical bodily resurrection? Does Does John have any idea how much confusion and differences of opinion his failure to elaborate is going to cause for people like me some have suggested that the sin leading to death is a persistent sin that remains unconfessed others have suggested that the sin leading to death is a capital crime And that the person would not think to have permission to escape the consequences since God has already said whoever sheds man's blood, by man will his blood be shed. Still others think that it might be a a reference to the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. What do I think? I'm going to invite you to take the passage at face value. And let me tell you what I mean by that. When John says, if anyone sees a brother caught up in a sin or a sinful lifestyle or an entrenched sin, ask him to repent. Imagine you're looking at each other, you're talking with each other, you're sharing with each other, you're involved in each other's life. And you can't help but notice that a person is involved in some obvious sin. Getting drunk, partying, living in a sexually immoral relationship. There's something wrong. There's something wrong. There's something obviously, terribly, horribly wrong. And you say to them, there's something horribly, terribly, and obviously wrong. The Bible is certainly clear that this is not a good thing. This is a wrong thing. This is a sinful thing. And you shouldn't probably be doing it. And the person says to you, who do you think you are? How dare you judge me? How dare you condemn me? How dare you do this and that? How, how dare you, for whatever reason, the person doesn't receive what you say. They, they deny what you say. They ignore what you say. They rationalize what you say. And then it says, and he will pray. And he will give him life. Here's what I'm going to suggest to you that it means. You pray for your husband, your wife, your brother, your sister, your friend, your neighbor, whoever it happens to be. You pray and you say, Lord, Bob or Gina or John or Jill or Mary or whoever it happens to be. They clearly have not received what I've said. They don't think this is a problem. They don't think it's a sin. They don't think this is an issue. They won't identify their sin. They won't repent of their sin. So, Lord, you're going to have to deal with them. Now, it's one thing for me to say to you, There's a problem, there's an issue, there's a difficulty. And according to the Bible, this shouldn't be a part of your life, this shouldn't be a part of your circumstances, this shouldn't be a part of what it means to be a Christian, and you blow me off. But now the Holy Spirit follows you out the door. The Holy Spirit follows you home. The fo- Holy Spirit follows you as you go to bed tonight, and all of a sudden, God, by his Holy Spirit, begins to impress upon you the horror of your sin and the and the misery that it's causing and, and the confusion and, and horror that it's bringing into your life and your circumstances, and all of a sudden you go, okay, I admit it, Lord, this is wrong, and this shouldn't be a part of my life. This isn't who I am. I'm going to turn from my sin and... And accept your forgiveness. We can resist each other, can't we? But what happens if we resist God's Holy Spirit? His persistent knocking. The conviction of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is difficult to resist and ignore. The missionary Hudson Taylor said, It's impossible to move men through god by prayer or it is possible to move men through god by prayer alone what did he mean by that again i'm not trying to like use secret powers to tell you how i get things done but every once in a while i'll pray for you and i'll go lord Could you please lay it on the heart of this particular person or that particular person to go in this particular direction or that particular direction? Not for purposes of for me or for my good or or for what I perceive to be the good of the church, but for your good. And God moves. God answers prayer. So what is the sin leading to death? Is this some sin that will eventually result in the physical de- destruction of the body? In Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 16, there's an interesting interesting statement that's made to Jeremiah. Remember, this is the context in which Israel, or Judah in particular, and Jerusalem specifically, is about to be judged by God. Jeremiah has pleaded with the people, turn from your sin, repent from your sin, Turn from your sin, trust God, submit to God, obey God. Turn from your sin, trust God, obey God, submit to God. And in Jeremiah chapter seven, verse 16, the Lord says to Jeremiah, therefore pray not thou for this people, neither lift up cry nor prayer for them, neither make intercession to me for I won't hear you. Can you imagine praying to God for a mom, a dad, a brother, a sister, a friend, a family member, someone somewhere, and you're impressed by God. Stop praying for Him. Now I'm gonna admit something to you. That's never happened to me. It's never happened to me that God said, stop praying for that person. Give up on that person. There's no hope for that person. That person's gone. That person's past redemption. That person is never going to give in. That person's never going to give up. That person's never going to submit to the wooing power of the Holy Spirit. God in his grace and his mercy has given me permission to continue to pray for each and every person who for whatever reason hasn't come into a right relationship with God. But is it possible like what happened to Jeremiah. Is it possible that it could happen to someone? Is it, I'm gonna to suggest to you that it, I, I think that it is possible that God could impress upon you that there's a certain prayer that you might be praying that is so absolutely foreign to the will of God that God asks you to stop. But if you contrast that with Samuel in 1 Samuel chapter 12, verse 23, where it says. As for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by failing to pray for you. Cory Ten Boom believed that prayerlessness was a sin. Samuel believed prayerlessness was a sin. And in verse 17, it says, "All unrighteousness is sin, and there is sin not leading to death." Now John says, "All unrighteousness is sin. Anything less than God's perfection constitutes sin. John says there is sin not leading to death. So, what what does that mean? I'm going to suggest to you that there's distinct differences or degrees of sin. In what sense? Offense towards God? No. In what sense? In consequence. In consequence. There are certain sins that have an immediate consequence, and there's certain sins that might be deferred for a little time or for a long time. So, how do we live free from sin? We abandon the things that are unrighteous and we embrace those things that are our righteous. All unrighteousness is sin. And if that's true, and it is true, if all unrighteousness is sin, That in order for us to live free from sin and abandon unrighteousness, we're going to have to embrace righteousness. We're going to have to embrace goodness. Someone once said, prayer moves the hand that moves the world. And so if you want answers to your prayer, remember what the text says. Be confident in the Lord Jesus. Access to God comes from the merits and mediation of your Savior. Jesus is the only safe ground that we stand on. We have confidence that a real God is there, a real God hears us. We are willing to be corrected. What does that mean? We submit to the conditions for answered prayer, we pray according to His will. We pray that we'll separate ourselves from known sin. We pray in faith according to God's word. We pray persistently in perseverance, in petition, supplication, thanksgiving, with humility. We pray in faith. We pray in simplicity. Sincerity in the will of God. We pray with compassion. In what sense? That when we see someone in trouble, we help them. In what sense? When part of that trouble is sin and rebellion and disobedience, and we say, you know what? I'm not in charge of your life and I'm not here to lord it over you. But there are choices and decisions that are being made that are grieving the heart of God, grieving the Holy Spirit, grieving the work of God. And the person will respond. Or they won't. And if they don't, then you pray to the Lord. Lord, you tell them. You instruct them. You remind them. You convict them. And by the way, if they resist you, is that a big deal? Not really. If they resist God, is that a big deal? It's a very big deal. So, We're going to have communion. So let's pray for just a second here. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that prayer can be done simply in humility. That, Lord, you want to cultivate communication. Lord, we thank you that we do have great privileges that we can come to you. We can ask. We can ask for good things, healthy things, things that are going to promote maturity, sensibility, godliness, things that are going to promote your plan and your purpose, things that are going to cooperate with whatever it is that you have planned in our individual lives, in the lives of our family, the lives of our church, and the life of our nation. Lord, we pray that we would desire what you desire. Lord, we pray that we would let you pick what's best for us. Lord, we pray for a sensitivity and compassion for people who are hurt, people who are in trouble, and people who are in need. And Lord, again, not for the purposes of condemning them, but for the purpose of restoring them. Knowing that the whole point is friendship and fellowship with you and with each other. And so again, Father, we pray that you would now just look into our hearts. Lord, we pray that we would take a moment and we would consider the sacrifice of Jesus. Lord, we pray that you would prepare us as we once again reflect on the sacrifice of Jesus that's been made for us, that you would fill our hearts with joy in the knowledge that you've reconciled us to yourself. In Jesus' name, amen.